I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, this is Peter Truckill. I write every week in The New European about the languages of Europe and about language in Europe generally. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, please join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome back to The New European Podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper, including people like me. Steve Anglesey, how are you doing? In a moment, I'm going to be joined by the author and journalist James Ball. He's the global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. He's written about the unfolding nightmare of Brexit and the current issue of the New European. And we're also going to talk about the holes and the unfairness in the government's tax hike to pay for social care and the NHS backlog. And after that, we'll be putting more putrid politicians and pompous pundits into the Hall of Shame. The New European's got an excellent new website. Why not check it out at theneweuropean.co.uk? And you can enjoy more from The New European by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And we've got an excellent new podcast you can listen to after you finish listening to this one. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives is brilliant. It tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's really great. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. So coming up, James Ball. But first, can you smell that? I love the smell of Brexit in the morning. It smells like, well, not victory. It's more like rotting and burning, really. The absence of seasonal workers from the EU and Boris Johnson's unwillingness to expand the list of those who can come here temporarily without loads of paperwork and a guaranteed salary of 25,600 quid, all of that continues to cause chaos at the start of the food supply chain. And then there's a lack of HGV drivers, as we know, causing chaos at the end. So we hear about a farm near Bognor Regis, which is leaving 750,000 courgettes to decay in the fields. And raspberry growers near York, they're ending uh, what have proved to be futile attempts to hire British staff. And now they're inviting the public in to pick up what they want for free. Then they're going to shut down after 20 years. Elsewhere, the bonfires are being lit. Growers in Scotland have destroyed 2.5 million heads of broccoli and 1.5 million cauliflowers because of a lack of staff to pick them. Most gruesomely, over 100,000 pigs face being killed and then burned because there are not enough butchers. The pork industry says that a 15% shortfall of skilled abattoir workers means there's a backlog of 85,000 pigs waiting to be slaughtered. The list grows by 15,000 pigs every week and extreme measures are now being considered as it becomes uneconomical to keep feeding them. 
And while all this is going on, the Home Office says more free movement from the EU is not the answer. And a government spokesperson says it wants to see employers make long-term investments in the UK domestic workforce instead of relying on labour from abroad. But what happens when, demonstrably, as we're seeing, UK workers are reluctant to pick fruit for hours on remote farms that they might have to camp on or or to join the haulage industry as the era of driverless vehicles approaches or to retrain as abattoir workers for low pay while adverts for plant-based foods fill our screens and McDonald's bring out a vegan burger. One recent suggestion was that serving prisoners could be trained as butchers to fill the shortfall. No, there's no way that could possibly go wrong. But at least the government has yet to suggest that, after the Swedish pop legends come back in virtual form, our abattoirs could be staffed by avatars. Coming up, James Ball on Brexit and social care. But first, we asked listeners of this podcast what you thought of the government's tax hike. Penelope Middleton-Darby says, "It, It taxes the lower paid more and no more tax for the very rich. This Tory government is penalising the poor and the middle class at every turn and favouring its rich friends. Youngsters are over, are often the lowest paid, and they have an NI hike of over 10%. Janice Swanson says a wealth tax and possibly a small rise in income tax would be more equitable. Sean Williams says taxing the working poor is such a Tory thing to do. It's totally wrong on so many levels. Income tax is the fairest way, and making sure profits on shares, property, and other investments get taxed too. The saddest thing is that those who suffer the most either vote Tory or don't bother to vote at all. I fear my work at the food bank is going to increase as a result. Graham Brown says, how about making the 151 billionaires and the international corporations who pay little or no tax in this country pay their share rather than screwing ordinary working people yet again? Wendy Williams says, as a pensioner, I think it's wrong. If we're not taxing the super rich, then spread the burden over rich pensioners as well. They do not pay national insurance. And Daniel Banks says, I'm wondering if the poorest 30% will notice that they're being taxed to maximise inheritance for the richest half of the country. And they'll go on to stop supporting the Tories. Many of the poorest will see no benefit from the national insurance increase and will still be at risk of losing their homes. Rachel Roseanne Armstrong says something that I think we've all been thinking. Where's the £350 a week they promised for the NHS? There are a few payments overdue. Isn't it wrong that the poorest in society have to pay out the most? Alan Howie, he says, if you want a health and social care service fit for the 21st century, you've got to pay for it. There's no use in whinging. Stump up or get what you pay for. There's one caveat, only charge those who can afford it and charge the rich treble. And Craig Denane says, I will support this just as soon as they drop the pay of MPs by a minimum of £10,000 a year, freeze their pay for a minimum of three years, rescind all contracts handed out to their friends, ban them from having second jobs, ban them from having shares in healthcare companies that have anything to do with the NHS. If this is all done, I'd be happy with the increase. And if MPs feel they're worthy of support, they won't mind if we all just pop out on a Thursday night and clap for them, will they? So, reacting to all of that is the new European columnist and global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, James Ball. James Ball, welcome back to the podcast. Nice to have you again. It's a pleasure as ever to be here. Marvellous. Now, before we launch into your mega piece on uh, on Brexit uh, and, and the fact that it's not going that well, is it? Um, our readers are very angry about the way this 
tax hike has been sold, about the way it's been assessed, about the way it's been waved through the first stage of the, the process. There are already some awkward moments, awkward questions for the government around this with care workers getting a tax hike when they should be getting a pay rise and someone who's earning £32,000 paying the same amount as somebody who's earning 132000 And then you mentioned I saw a, a graduate on £30,000 uh, with a tax rate now, a total tax rate of 42.5%, while a non-graduate on 60000 is paying only 1% more. Is there a sense that this is unravelling already in the same way Theresa May's proposals for social care did? Yeah, I mean, the, the odd thing is, this is much worse than Theresa May's proposals <laughs> on social care. Um, I mean, Theresa May's plan was a less good version of that era of Labour's plan, which was basically... If you end up needing social care, but you've got a property worth a fortune, at the moment you you have to sell that house, mm. um, you know, and pay you know pay the the fixed amount until you you sort of get it. Um, May's plan was to kind of go, you can keep your house until you die, and then we'll pull it back. Um, and so it was it was sort of at the moment you lose your house while you're alive. Hers was, you'll lose it after you die, which is nicer. Hmm. But uh, what what sort of this is, is you could still lose your house while you're alive. You might end up, if you're one of the really lucky people who go into a care home and live for more than two years, you might end up hitting this new cap and not paying too much. Um, but otherwise, it doesn't really do much for most people who need social care. It's no, it just doesn't. doesn't fix the problems with social care, which is things like it doesn't come from the same budget as the NHS. And so councils of, often don't want to foot the bill for people. Uh, the NHS doesn't want to foot the bill. So you get these gaps of, you know, different incentives. It's horribly underfunded. Care workers are horribly paid and it's a really hard job. Um, and so they've got a massive recruitment crisis. Private equity has sucked a ton of money out of it. And what we've got here really is a tax hike of about 36 billion. And most of it isn't going on social care. And so we're all going to pay more tax. And national insurance is a nasty tax because people on lower income pay more of it than they pay income tax. But they're sort of doing all of this. And it's actually really about not expanding the deficit. Most of this is going on the NHS and sorting the backlog which, you know, it's it's basically a con. They're using the word social care to do a tax hike that's just another variation of austerity. Yes. So we've been scammed and they've passed it in a day so that by the time people realise they've been scammed, it's already too late to do anything about it. Quite, a, quite amazing, isn't it? I mean, we were told there was going to be a huge Tory rebellion on this. Jacob Rees-Mogg in his uh, weird... Uh, Sunday Express column where he, he picks out quotations from down the years, opposite quotations. The one who picked out, they're usually from Moliere. Well, no, they're not from Moliere, are they? He's far too French. They're normally from, <laughs> uh, they're normally from obscure lords and ladies and, and Shakespeare and people like that. Anyway, he, he, the, one he picked, the one he picked out was was George George H.W. Bush's Read My Lips, No New Taxes at the weekend, which is quite provocative. Um, and then, uh, what, so why didn't this courageous Tory rebellion happen? So, um, well, they never do, do they? They always no, talk a good game never. and then, you know, fold, fold like a pack of cards. But, um, I mean, they, um, 
They did do a sort of quiet version of it. There were 37 Tory MPs who just didn't vote. Um, and so they seem to have sort of decided to make it so that later, you know, when they're running for re-election, they can say they didn't vote for it without actually jeopardising their chances of getting a ministerial office uh, next reshuffle, which, you know, we were led to believe would be happening this week. And then, of course, as soon as Boris got his uh, vote through, it's like, oh, actually, it's going to be later. You know, reshuffle Benanya. Well, of course, he might have to do a, a reshuffle because of because of what's happened in the education ministry. But I will discuss that later on. Let's, <laughs> let's turn to your... Uh, I mean, mean, it's at least very good value for money. Just for entertainment value alone, it's it's probably worth having them around. But I would I would suggest there's some kind of court jester figure um, rather than uh, an education secretary. Um, Let's turn to your big article about about Brexit, which is in the current issue of the, the New European. And you start with the musical Cats. Now, apart from the fact that the fact that the film of Cats is almost as big a disaster as Brexit. Why is why is cats relevant? Um, well, I, I I couldn't resist trying to get people to see the parallel between uh, Brexit and cats. They they sort of had similar production values and uh, have gone uh, particularly well uh, for both. But um, yeah, no, James Corden I, licking himself, I think, would be more uh, <laughs> oh. pleasant of viewing than uh, some of this. Anyway. I, I still have trauma nightmares about Cat Judy Dench, to be honest. But um, but I, um, I I had to watch Cats about three or four hundred times because uh, my my nephews and nieces who I used to live with uh, would, as young children, watch it on loop on DVD, the musical of it. And uh, one of the songs is about sort of two evil cats who you know steal everything and smash everything and actually remind me a lot of my own cats and they always get away with it because uh, as the chorus goes was it mungo jerry or rumple teaser and most of the time they leave it at that and weirdly it just reminded me of this government with brexit and you know the joke in the song is of course it's always both of them now with the government Anytime anyone tries to blame anything on Brexit, they immediately can go, well, no, it's coronavirus, and that's not our fault that there was a global pandemic. In our manifesto. And, of course, actually, almost every problem that we're having, the answer is that both of them have contributed to it, and both of them make it worse. You know, there are shortages on the shelves across the world. We are having them much worse because of Brexit. There are recruitment problems in all sorts of countries. You know, the US is famously, uh, service sector is finding it hard to hire and they're upping wages, but Brexit has made it a lot harder. And so they're managing to get away with this very dumb trick of just essentially kind of saying, well, hey, you don't really know what it is that's caused this. Yes, they are. I mean, you you write about the problems of shipping and, and shipping containers that's not directly to do with brexit is it what's what's happening with shipping containers it's i mean it's quite funny sort of a, a couple of years ago there was sort of more shipping containers than anyone needed and they were really cheap yes what, what kind of happened in the first wave of the pandemic is all the ships kind of more or less ended up stopping demand dropped and be, you know what we needed and wanted changed really radically and so ships kind of just stopped or offloaded in quite unusual places. And we've ended up with shipping containers in all the wrong places. But port workers keep getting ill or having to self-isolate or get new jobs elsewhere. 
And so because of the time turning around, they, the ships often can't wait in a port long enough to get the empty containers loaded on them to get them where they need to be. And so the cost of shipping has got up hugely, but also just getting space on container ships right now is really difficult. Mm. And so that's a global problem. But what we're having the additional problems on is that it, even if people manage to get their container ship you know, into Europe somewhere, a port in Europe or even a port in the UK, it's really hard to get a lorry driver to then do the onward journey. And so, you know, we're just hitting problem on problem. You know, it's it's kind of like punching a bruise. Um, you know, the, the punch isn't the whole injury, but it hurts a heck of a lot more because of yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I was talking about this, the, the, the lorry drivers thing and, the, and and at the other end of the food chain, the lack of people to, you know, pick food or pick fruit or process meat uh as well i mean we can we can go through the food chain actually you know i i was seeing seeing a tweet this morning from someone who sort of went around the town and uh two pubs had failed to open that night because they couldn't get enough staff yeah and another two had closed early because uh they couldn't get food deliveries for their kitchen and it wasn't worth being open with no food to serve um so right you know from farm to fork at the moment we're short on the staff. Yeah. And actually, you know, we talk about lorry drivers as being a shortage. Right now, the UK has more vacancies than it has ever had in since records began. There are 953,000 open jobs at the moment. And every single sector of the economy but one has more vacancies than a year ago. And I quite like the one that hasn't because it's uh, car mechanics. <laughs> it's because we've all driven so much less, less yeah. because of lockdowns that everyone's car isn't quite good nick. And so car mechanics are struggling for work, apparently. You, I mean, we, 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 you talk about the supply line issues uh, the, the the food chain. I mean, you also talk about things that the, the, the government thought it had parked as a result of Brexit. Settled status is one. I mean, you but then you're you know you're writing that those warning of the potential for a new windrush coming out of the settled status are not wrong to worry. Um, that, yeah. That's a pretty big statement. What's what's happening there? So the government's put in various points now where your citizenship or your right to work or your right to live here gets checked. When but it used to kind of not really. Anyone who sort of lives in a rented house and who's moved in the last year or so will know that, you know, once you just did your credit checks, etc., now you have to, in person, be able to show photo ID proving that you have a right to live and work here, uh, to rent a place. And so uh, you also now often have to prove to the NHS that you have a right to access NHS services. Mm. And so people, you know, there were, there were a lot of people applied for settled status. It turns out there were more Europeans here than anyone knew. But we don't know that everyone applied. We have no way of knowing how many people didn't. But they will start to run into, you know, next time they need want to rent a place, next time they need the NHS, they'll suddenly run into the fact that they're here illegally without meaning to. And there's not really a catch-up mechanism for settled status. If you miss the boat, you miss the boat. The other problem will be that quite a lot of people didn't get settled status. They got pre-settled mm. status because they hadn't been here for five years by the cutoff. Now, this means, essentially, when they hit five years, as long as they got pre-settled status they can apply for settled status and should, automat- and should get it. But it doesn't just automatically upgrade. 
And so a lot of people who don't know the minutiae of the rules or don't have English as a first language may well not know the difference and think that it's all sorted and they've got an indefinite right to remain here and suddenly find themselves in two or three years here illegally. And again, that could get them deported or lose their rights to access property or healthcare. And so the mixture of trying to change the legal status of millions of people who've lived and worked here and contributed to the life of our country with the Home Office, who seems to regard looking a bit foreign as a criminal offence, really does have the potential still to, to blow up quite badly. Yes, it certainly does. I mean, there's a whole... There's a whole raft of these things which which you you mentioned in your piece, and I've got a few readers' questions to 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 finish with. Kay Smith, you, you I mean you talk in the piece about Northern Ireland, and Kay Smith wants to know: Is Christmas going to be cancelled, and is it going to be cancelled particularly in Northern Ireland? It's looking a bit worrying. Um, mm. I mean, I mean, it isn't going to be banned, is it? It's, it's... no, you know, we're not facing an Oliver Cromwell. So, I mean, honestly, actually, Boris Johnson having uh, having banned sex for anyone who doesn't li- you don't live with, uh, <laughs> then then bans Christmas. I mean, it, it really would be a, a turn up, wouldn't it? No, in theory, we should uh, we should sort of manage to scrape something together, but. A lot of things that we tend to regard as staples of a British Christmas might not be there. Um, We're facing Prosecco shortages, which I know will uh, deeply distress my mom and brother as we we have a tradition of buying six bottles for Christmas. (laughs) We don't have them all at once. Um, But um, turkeys could be in in sort of short, short supply, all sorts of unusual Christmas stocks could be really hard to get hold of because usually it's about a month, two months time, supermarkets are facing their biggest stock kind of stretch of the entire year. And at the moment, they're struggling to do normal stocking. Mm. And so in Northern Ireland, you know, a real sign of the end times is that uh, Marks and Spencers have cancelled their Christmas orders. Now, they're saying they're still hopeful that they'll manage to get a lot of the stuff you would usually do through the ordering system just on the shelves but they can't guarantee anything. And so they've just had to kind of go, you know what? We can't promise you Christmas this year. Blimey. So back to the orange in a sock, which my uh, parents used to tell me they received for Christmas. Uh, (laughs) I think uh, you were good. Yes, exactly. Um, Francisco Cassells says, do you think the damage is going to get better or is it going to get exponentially worse and how? And uh, presumably, I mean, you know, there's there's stuff about changes that happen on the 1st of October that might make things worse, I guess. Yeah, I mean, as, as ever, the government seems to get close to these things that have to happen and it said wouldn't be a problem and then realise that there'll be a big problem. And so, you know, earlier in the week, they've extended various grace periods for Northern Ireland with EU agreement. Um, But on October the 1st, there's meant to start being checks for stuff coming into the mainland Great Britain. Yeah from Europe. And I'm hearing whispers that they might unilaterally be delayed again, because we don't think we can do them. So at some point, they will come in. At some point, the Northern Ireland stuff will have to come in. And so I think for a year or two, things might carry on getting worse. What will happen after that is 
will stop getting the sort of difficulties of transitioning to post-Brexit, but we'll start seeing, you know, when European companies expand, they won't expand their UK office, they'll expand in Germany or Denmark or somewhere. And other countries will grow faster than us, they'll find it easier to trade, they may be more business friendly. As our rules naturally diverge from the EU's, we'll find it harder and harder to trade services there. And um, I think it's Dan Knowles at The Economist kind of said, you know, what will happen is in about 20 years time, you'll be in a European airport going on holiday and you'll notice that everyone who's, say, French or German looks a bit richer than you, has a nicer coat, you know, has better suitcases, has... And it'll suddenly be visible that we are an obviously poorer country than them. So the impacts, the obvious impacts will lessen. But suddenly in the long term, we will find ourselves markedly poorer than countries that are currently basically our peers. And Stuart Foster, yeah. well, just one more, because I, I know we're overrunning already. But Stuart Foster says, um, what have been the positives of Brexit? Is there anything at all, however small, anything for Brexit is? To cling to. I mean, I, I guess you would say that the the, the HGV drivers are, are, are getting uh, are getting better paid out of it. But um... yeah, I mean, um, I I saw a thing. I think uh, some Waitrose drivers have had their pay go up from seventeen fifty an hour to twenty four fifty. I mean, yes. that's the kind of pay hike that really could change your life. So, you know, there's some benefits. I think we do have to look at. If Brexit helps push up wages for low paid workers, that's long overdue. And if we can do that without it putting us in an inflationary spiral, that's even better. You know, we've seen capital get more and more of the share of the pie. There is a benefit to people on low incomes getting a pay rise. There's also, and I put this one in the piece, um, I think people have heard of CRISPR technology. It could be used to treat yes. um, various genetic disorders, but it's basically like a much more subtle version of um, genetic modification. Instead of sort of splicing different species together, it just forces modifications that could happen naturally with evolution. Now, the EU has been quite anti it. They've decided to class it as exactly the same as GM. Um, you know, there's always been a European backlash against the potentials of these. Um, but CRISPR we could actually be a bit more relaxed about it. And uh, one of the first sort of CRISPR things that we're looking at is um, a, a variant of wheat that uh, is less likely to um, be carcinogenic when it's uh, toasted as bread. Because, mm. you know, burnt toast, uh, they, they think it's, it's carcinogenic. They, they reckon they could make it so that this gives off a lot less of that. So if you like your toast well done, you could have much safer toast in a few years. Um, it might not be. It not might not be what makes Brexit all worthwhile. But you know, I think at this point we have to take the small mercies, don't we? We do. We do. So I mean, so, so to sum up, no, no turkey this Christmas, but safer toast to be faced in <laughs> by, the, by the middle of the century. God is bleak. Put, put that on your bus. <laughs> Thank you so much to James Ball. Thank you, Steve. He is a new European columnist. He's global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. You can read his forensic analysis of Brexit so far in the New European. To enjoy more from the New European and not hear me stumbling over my words, subscribe at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. 
And finally, it's the Hall of Shame. You know what this is. It's our home for putrid politicians, pompous pundits, things that just annoy me generally. Um, Pretty Patel's in the Hall of Shame. She annoys me generally. Uh, she's in there for suggesting that migrant boats are going to be pushed back. It's almost as if she's throwing a dead cat on the table to distract from other problems the government has. Now, pushing migrant boats back to sea breaks international law. It breaks the UN's Geneva Convention. I know we've left the EU because we didn't like their laws. Are we going to leave the UN now? Maybe we should just leave the planet altogether if we don't like the international laws. Let's let's just let's just go. We, you know, they're all going to miss uh, us more than we miss them. I imagine we can cheer as our rockets go up to our bleak new space station, the interstellar pretty. Patella. Boris Johnson is in the Hall of Shame once again for being a liar once again. Uh, he was asked if he was still committed to lowering taxes after raising taxes this week. And this is what he said. When I was mayor of London, I cut my share of the council tax by 20%. It's not true, is it? Council tax for Londoners went down by 11% in his term. But isn't that a big tax cut anyway? Isn't that a good thing that Boris Johnson did? Well, it, it is. I mean, it did go down by a lot. It went down by 11%, not 20%, as he said. But that was because extra taxes to fund the London Olympics disappeared. They were always going to do so. So he lied about the tax cut, and most of his tax cut was going to happen anyway. Good old Boris Johnson, eh? He's a laugh, isn't he? Alack, again, harumph, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner, the time when I read out the most ridiculous bits from the ridiculous Anne Widdicombe's ridiculous column in the ridiculous Daily Express. Anne Widdicombe says this week that Michael Gove can't be Home Secretary, and I agree, he can't be Home Secretary, he's a tosser. Uh, but that's not why uh, Anne Widdicombe says he shouldn't get the job. Anne Widdicombe writes, Gove cannot stop plotting. As we all know, he stopped Boris Johnson in the back during the leadership election, and there is speculation about his friends briefing against the Foreign Secretary. God, that sounds awful, doesn't it? Stabbing people in the back that you've worked with during an election campaign and briefing against them. God, it's terrible behaviour. Do you know, who was it then that stabbed Michael Howard in the back after working with him? He stabbed him in the back during the 1997 Tory leadership election. He's saying there was something of the night about him, despite being a colleague of his for many years. Maybe uh, maybe Anne Widdicombe can remind me about who that was. But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week, there can be only one, it's, it's Gavin Williamson. Gavin Williamson met the rugby union player, Mario, uh, Maro, sorry, Itoji, on Zoom, and then he declared he'd met Marcus Rashford on Zoom. What an incredible moment this is for Boris Johnson. He appointed Gavin Williamson because he's a diehard headbanger who, having been chief whip and then worked in Johnson's campaigns, knows where all the bodies are buried. Boris Johnson's had to keep him in because of that, despite numerous cock-ups that show Gavin Williamson isn't fit for office. This week, as James Baller said, the government told Tory ministers that anyone who voted against the new tax rises would be immediately reshuffled out of their jobs. And they promised them that if it all went smoothly, they didn't have to be a nasty reshuffle at all. And now there is going to be a reshuffle because not even Boris Johnson can have a minister who confuses one sports star for another sports star just because they both happen to be black. Maro Itoji, Marcus Rashford. Or can he keep Gavin Williamson in office? We're just going to have to wait and see. i tell you one thing. If you were up in court, would you want the care minister, Helen Waitley, defending you because when Nick Ferrari said is Gavin Williamson racist or incompetent this is what Helen Waitley replied 
honestly, I don't know. I can't believe for a moment he's racist. It's highly unlikely. Just imagine that in court. Your Honour, I honestly don't know whether my client is guilty or not. I can't believe for a moment that he's a serial killer. It's highly unlikely. Not really a strong defence, is it? That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to my guest, James Ball. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks, too, to our ace producer, Ellie longman Rood. Episodes of the New European Podcast are released every Friday. If you enjoyed this one, why not subscribe and rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice? If you'd like to enjoy more podcasts from the New European, check out Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, visit our spanking new website and join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social media, you can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow The New European on Twitter, at The New European, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.